This episode is sponsored by Blinkist. There's no such thing as absolute quality, just relative quality compared to other things. So we need to factor this in for everything we choose. Let's say you go out and buy a house. You're not just trading money to buy a home, but you're also passing up opportunities to move overseas, rent into a better location in a different city and so forth. And economists call this opportunity cost. And this is a really big deal when it goes to reading because if you pick up a book, you spend 30 or 40 bucks on it and you trowel through 500, I'll just made up a word then, trowel, let's go with it, <laughs> go with it. 500, 600 pages of a book. It, the book might be a piece of shit, but you've invested so much time into it. So book selection is absolutely critical and that's why we recommend Blinkist. There's uh, actually already 15 million people who have recognized the opportunity cost, the recognize that Spending time learning isn't all uh, equal. Sometimes you can learn better things than others. Sometimes you can use your time more effectively. So 15 million people are already using Blinkist to broaden their knowledge. They've got 27 different nonfiction categories from self-improvement, personal growth, management, leadership, mindfulness, and happiness. Right now, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com forward slash what you will learn to start a free seven-day trial and get 25% off a Blinkist premium membership. That's Blinkist spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T dot com slash what you will learn to get 25% off and a free seven-day trial. Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today, we're taking you through the best bits of The Dip by Seth Godin. The extraordinary benefits of knowing when to quit and when to stick. Seth, the great man, he says that he feels like giving up almost every day, in fact. Not all day, but every single day, there is a moment where he thinks, maybe I should quit. And I think both of us can probably say the same. And how bad is probably most of you, if you're ambitious and, and doing hard things, you probably feel the same thing as well. Yeah, it is true. Every day, I just kind of fantasize about just stopping everything and just playing StarCraft for a full <laughs> yeah. week and just giving up on everything. And if you're someone listening to a podcast like this, you're definitely a kind of high-achieving, goal-oriented person who probably thinks the same at times. So, most of the time, we deal with these obstacles we come across by persevering. We might see an inspirational quote. You might hear Tony Robbins pump his chest or Vince Lombardi say, quit is never win and win is never quit. But according to Seth, this is actually bad advice. Winners quit all the time. They just quit the right stuff at the right time. There's a story of Hannah Smith and Seth says, Hannah Smith, she's a very lucky woman. She became a law clerk at the Supreme Court. She's lucky because she was one of only 37 people selected for the position out of more than 42,000 applicants. And generally, the, the people that go through this clerkship uh, top law firms will recruit them. They'll pay a, them a signing bonus of about 200 grand a year for any clerk they're able to hire. And these graduates, they go on to become partners, judges, senators. But of course, she's not lucky at all. Uh, she is actually extremely dedicated, extremely hardworking. She's smart. She's focused. And she's not lucky because any of those 42,000 applicants could have had her job, but they didn't because they weren't as good as her. It's not that they weren't smart enough or they came from the wrong family or anything like that. The reason they didn't get one of those 37 prize spots is because somewhere along the way, they quit. Yeah, they didn't quit in high school or college because they made it that far. So, they got pretty far along the way, but at some stage, they quit before Heidi did. So, she kept her nose to the grindstone and worked hard to become that 0.01% that actually made it to the top. So, most people quit. They just don't do it successfully. And society assumes and many systems and organizations and hierarchies everywhere count on the fact that you're going to give up sooner or later. 
But if you learn about these systems and how it all actually works, you're at least a shot at trying to beat them. And once you understand the common sinkhole that trips up so many people, and this is what Seth Godin calls the dip, you'll be soon one step closer to getting through it all. Extraordinary benefits accrue to that tiny, tiny minority, that 0.01% of people who are able to push through just that little bit longer. But also extraordinary benefits accrue to the tiny minority who have the guts to quit early and refocus their efforts on something new. So this is a, it's a very short book. It's only like 80 pages, but it's about one very important topic and that's quitting. You know, we did that book, Grit. It was all about perseverance. It was all about not quitting and saying that the path to success is not quitting, but the dip actually talks about quitting strategically. Yeah, believe it or not, quitting is often actually a a great strategy, which is pretty counterintuitive, and it's a very smart way to manage your life and career. So if we're talking about this book in three lines, quit the wrong stuff, stick with the right stuff, and have the guts to do one or the other. The goal for anyone who wants to achieve massive success is to become the best in the world. So Seth says there's enormous value in becoming the best in the world because our culture celebrates the superstars. We reward the the best product on the shelves or the the best song of the year or the organizations with the best employee of the month. We always go, we're always pulled towards the number one. We go for whatever is best. And these rewards are so heavily skewed that generally the number one gets 10 times the benefit of number 10 and 100 times the benefit of number 100. There's an, uh, there's an interesting example. He talks about the International Ice Cream Association with their top 10 flavors. Number one, vanilla. Number two, chocolate. Number three, butter pecan. Never heard of it. <laughs> but apparently, it's number three. Must be very popular overseas. Strawberry, Neapolitan, choc chip, French vanilla, cookies and cream, fudge ripple, praline. Uh, so, these are the top 10. And then if you look at the graph of their sales, vanilla, the number one, has got about 30% of all ice cream sales. Number two, chocolate, has only got 8%. So, that's a massive 4x drop off already. And if you look down to number 10, it's squandering down at only 2%. So, vanilla has got more than 10 times the sales of number 10. Yeah, it's almost like this in all fields. He calls it Zipf's Law, also Pareto distribution, I think. Also, the Matthew effect, which we've covered in different books where if you're at the top, there's more likely you're going to get more. So, there's just a disproportionate amount that goes to those who are the best. It probably explains a lot of the inequality and stuff around the world. And when was this book written? Say, what, 20 years ago now? Uh, A bit less, but yeah. But I think this is more extreme now due to the advent of scalability with everything going onto the internet, mm. for example, podcasting. Uh, back in the day, if you were, wanted to listen to some great content, you probably have to go to the local community speech or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Today, you can just hop on the internet and go straight to the best person in the whole entire world. It might be like a Joe Rogan or something and that explains why they're getting hundreds of millions of downloads. Whereas your local person hanging out in the community center doing his speech, no one's really rocking up uh, to that anymore. So this Zipf's law, this power distribution, which is like a back-to-front exponential curve where it's really high at number one and then it quickly exponentially drops down and trails out, it's this, it's this idea of there's a short head and a long tail. So the short head is where all the benefits are, the long tail. Everybody's doing okay down there, but if you think about it, Apple and Amazon, they love this long tail because they own the whole tail. If you know, if 90% of songs posted to the, uh, to the iTunes store sell one copy a year, uh, Apple is loving it because they're getting a percentage of every single sale. Not so much the person who just sold one song. Mm-hmm. Same as like the Kindle books. If you sell two or three Kindle books a year and you make 30 or 40 cents, uh, it feels pretty shit. Amazon's like, 
You know, we've got a million different people who are selling three or four copies each, so that's incredible. So if you if you own the whole tail, you're loving that long tail. If you're an individual, you got to force your way up into that short head to get those exponential benefits. Yeah, because people don't have a lot of time and they don't want to take on a lot of risk. Imagine if you get cancer in the pinky toe or something like that. You're not going to spend a lot of time going through your local doctor who's just the first one who just pops up. What you're going to do is you're going to go online, look at the best of the best reviews and just go straight to the top doctor and not worry about anyone else. Same thing, if you go to a new town on a holiday, you're going to go on Google or um, tomato, Rotten Tomato, Zomato and TripAdvisor and all those kind of things and go straight to the things that have the top of the top reviews and everything in that range of mediocre, you're not even going to worry about or think, think twice of. Yeah, when we've got limited time, limited opportunity to experiment, we intentionally narrow our choices just to the top ones. We're not going to stuff around with something that might be okay or might be crap. We're just going to think, okay, what's the best? I just want the best. So the the vital thing that we need to be doing is pushing ourselves to get to that level of being the best. Now, there's another reason why being at the top really matters and that's because there's only room at the top for just a few. So it doesn't matter how many people are in your industry, being at the top means a disproportionate amount and scarcity makes being at the top actually worth something. Yeah, so it's all those hurdles that pop up along the way, all those obstacles we spoke about at the very start. When it when it gets really tough and you feel like giving up, that's when most people give up. And because everybody else is giving up, it makes it really valuable to be one of those few that's, that's jumped over all those hurdles and busted through those obstacles and got to the point where there's scarcity and value. And that's the way it's really supposed to be. That's the way it needs to be. And the system depends on it. If there wasn't these hurdles and these people just tripping them up and not actually getting there all the way, then actually they wouldn't be the best. There would be no scarcity and there'd actually be no value in actually trying to do anything. So the best in the world is our goal, but we need to break that definition down a little bit. The best is the best for each individual right now based on what they believe and what they know. You might think you're the best, but the person who's about to buy, they've got a very different definition of what the best is. And the world is also the world that they have access to right now. So say if if you're looking for a book editor, then you might be thinking like the best might be someone who's obviously meets your minimum requirements and the world that you're looking for is someone who speaks English, somebody who's available to work right now, they haven't got another project going on and somebody who's affordable and within your price range. So that's the best mm. in your world. Absolutely. So it can be looking a different way. If we just bring it to just a real world example of the last hour or so, we're recording here at 7am. I was on the way here. I said, Ash Joe, is there any cafes that are open? And out of all the cafes between... Uh, Parkdale and Edithvale. There was only one that was open, so that cafe. <laughs> That's the best in the world. <laughs> that was the best in the world, being the cafe that opens early for people who want a ham and cheese croissant. Or croissant. How was it? It was a beautiful croissant. Mm, they're not bad. With a, an almond latte. So there are all sorts of different ways to become the best in the world. That's it. So on one hand, the world is getting larger because we can look everywhere. As you said, you don't need to go down to the community center to listen to the the speech. The world is so massive that you can access almost everybody in the world. So at the so that's how the world is getting larger. But at the same time, the world is also getting smaller because the categories are getting more and more specialized and more niche. We're no longer looking for a, a good book to read. We're looking for something very specific. We've all got our own individual preferences. So there are more different slots opening up where you can become the best. So as a personal example, I don't want to be blowing my ties up too much, 
because this is an extremely, extremely niche skill set and topic. But myself being an engineer, but also learning how to do podcasting and also in this niche industry within construction, which is mid-rise timber construction, um, doing a podcast on the side called Timber Talks. With that, there's really no one else in the world who is doing something as niche as that. It's not getting huge amount of listeners, but to that small group of people, according to this definition, I'm the best in the world in this very niche topic and it's very uncomfortable using the word <laughs> best in the world, but the context of being an extremely, extremely narrow niche and there's a lot of value there because to the client I'm doing the podcast for, I can actually charge a lot because there's no one else in the world who they can get to do this specific thing. Exactly. So, it's becoming really important to become the best in the world because at the moment, only the best in the world is getting any of the benefits. And on one hand, it's getting tougher because there's so much competition. You're competing with everybody around the planet, but it's also getting a little bit easier if you pick the right thing and if you commit to doing it all the way, there are more different smaller worlds, smaller places that you can win and become the best. Okay. So, any real project or anything you do in life follows three different curves that lead to three different outcomes. The first one we'll look at is the cul-de-sac and this first curve is just where you work, work and work and nothing changes. It doesn't get a lot better, it doesn't get a lot worse, it just is what it is and it's really what you call a dead-end job which a lot of people are in. I think, you know, 20, 30, 40 years kind of thing, just going through the motions, mm. your Monday to Friday, nine to five, nothing gets better, nothing gets worse, it's just going along. Yeah, exactly. If you think about this, uh, visualize this graph on the horizontal axis, we've got effort and on the vertical, we've got reward. So, increased effort does not lead to increased rewards. It's just flat the whole way along. No matter how long you're sticking to it, no matter how much you're trying, you really just, nothing's changing. The second curve we've got here is the cliff and this is something that looks potentially promising at first. So, you're going up and up and up on these vertical axes then all of a sudden, just, you just <laughs> drop over. off rapidly and you suffer. So, it's a situation like this where if you don't quit, everything's just going to fall apart. Uh, an example here that's pretty obvious is something like smoking. You're feeling pretty good when you're having the ciggy uh, with around people socializing and all that. You're going up, 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 up in a, one sense. But then one day, you hear you got this terminal illness and then bang, a cliff, mm. everything falls apart. Yeah, you you see it in movies all the time about the, the troubled hero. Maybe it's the hotshot lawyer or the banker or the superstar baseballer or basketballer. They start off, you know, nice, innocent. They're they're fresh. They're they're bright eyed and bushy tailed. And then, you know, as they get a bit more success, maybe they start I don't know going to hotel rooms. Maybe they start picking up some going to strippers. Maybe <laughs> they start cheating on their partner. Maybe they start doing some drugs, taking some performance enhancing substances, doing dodgy deals, making dodgy investments. You see it like escalating and it, at first they feel like they're making more progress. They're getting more results but all of a sudden, it all comes crashing down. Maybe they get, they get busted by the authorities of their sport doing drugs or maybe they get busted by their, their partner doing uh, some dodgy stuff. Uh, <laughs> they were initially riding high but inevitably, this cliff catches up to them so these two curves cul-de-sacs and cliffs they both lead to failure so if you're facing either of these curves you need to quit as painful as it is and not soon but you need to quit them now because the biggest obstacle to success in your life is your inability to quit when things aren't working well enough like Mm. that yeah, it might sound obvious, quit the things that aren't working or that aren't going to lead to success. But the hard truth is that while we think we know what we should be quitting, we don't actually know it or at least we don't actually do it. 
when it comes down to it, we aren't quitting the projects that aren't leading where we want to go. We'd rather just stick to it. We'd rather not rock the boat. We'd rather not put our hand up. We'd rather just stick it out and hope that it gets better somewhere along the way. We avoid that short-term hassle of having to change paths. Yeah, there might be some of this deep down feeling of just pain for what you're doing and you, you know what curve you're on, but you kind of just don't want to look at it and realize it because you're going to have to actually make this risky move to actually quit what you're doing. Mm. But that's what successful people do. So, there are our first two curves, the cul-de-sac, which is just flat, not going up, not going down. The second curve was the cliff, where it's gradually going up slowly until one day it just drops off to zero. Then we've got the real big papa, the dip. So, this is the curve that we want to be on. This is the curve that we want to be finding. And almost everything in life that is worth doing is controlled by a dip. So, at the beginning of this curve, when you first start out, it's fun. Maybe you're taking up some kind of new hobby or you're starting some new business or you start a new job. It doesn't matter what it is. In the beginning, it's interesting. You get plenty of good feedback from people around you and you're fueled by this early progress uh, and the rapid advancement that you're making at the very start. And then the dip happens. And this is the moment when things get really tough and difficult. And it's this long, long slog between where you started and you had that initial high and actually becoming a master. But It's actually a shortcut, which is counterintuitive because Mm. it gets where you want to go faster than any other path. Now, it's on this dip where everyone else quits that makes getting to the other side of the dip scarce in the first place. So, the dip visually goes up at first and then it's just flat, this long flat bit in the bottom until right at the very end, it ticks up and you get these exponential um, massive results at the end. But when you're in that dip, you can't really see the other end that's coming. It feels pretty tough. Uh, A couple of examples, he says the dip, that flat boring bit in the middle, maybe that's the textbooks and the paperwork you have to do to get your scuba diving license. Uh, Maybe the dip, I think I must have put this one in here, the dip on the harmonica, the difference between those beginner songs compared to those expert songs with the tongue blocking and the bending. Maybe the dip, it's that long stretch between your initial beginner's luck and the real achievement and accomplishment that comes at the very, very end. Yeah, another project might be something like writing a book. At the very start, you've got a title, you've got a concept, you tell your family, you tell all your mates and all that, and then all of a sudden, you've got this, all this uh, positive feedback on, oh, cool project, man, well done, well done. <laughs> and then you have this like initial high at the start, then all of a sudden, you have to start writing like, oh, fuck. <laughs> you know, you get into it and that's the dip. And a lot of people say they're going to start a book and even announce with a title and a cover and all that, but not many people actually push through the dip. And it's because not many people push through and they quit it makes actually the title of author quite a valuable and scarce kind of thing if you actually push to the other side. Another one, like say with our podcasting, at the very start, pretty easy stuff to whip out five or 10 podcasts. Mm. And then it's a very, very long slog between that and actually building some kind of audience and some kind of brand in podcasting because there's just what, tens and thousands of other podcasts Mm. out there now. But I think we're pushing through the dip right now. And in doing so, you're creating a bit of a moat and barrier to entry between those who are just starting. Yeah. yeah, and again, I think you mentioned Joe Rogan already, but we'll mention him again. Obviously, at the very start, you know, when you, when you tell your mates, oh, I'm starting a podcast, I say, oh, great work, you get 20 likes on Facebook when you first post it. Those first two, three, four episodes are fun and then the dip hits. So, between episode 10 and episode... For him, 1,000. <laughs> nothing else is really happening. You're, just, you're working, 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 effort is increasing, but the results aren't increasing. And it's not until the very end when you become the best in the world, that's when Spotify comes knocking and gives you a nine-figure deal, 100 mil plus. <laughs> yeah, and then people say he's lucky. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. But they're the three curves. 
And now we got to understand strategically what we should be doing about them. So as we said, quit the cliffs. They're not leading anywhere you want to go in life. Quit the cul-de-sacs. They're sucking your focus and resources away from what's important. So a bit of an opportunity cost. If you're on the cul-de-sac the whole time, there's always those resources you're spending on that you could be putting into your dips, which you should be sticking with. So it's hard, but that's your only option with the dips. Most people tell you that you just need to persevere, try harder, put in more hours, get more training, work hard. Don't quit is what everybody says. But if all you had to do to achieve success was not quit, there'd be plenty of less talented people that are highly motivated that just stick it out and make it to the other end. The only thing is they're sticking it out on the cul-de-sacs or the cliffs. They've chosen the wrong thing. So the secret to success is actually quitting, but strategic quitting. Reactive quitting is bad. Serial quitting, that's, a, that's even worse. People quit when it gets hard, when it gets painful, when they hit that dip, that's when they quit because they think, man, this sucks. But armed with the knowledge of these curves, now you can quit more strategically. Quit the wrong stuff and stick with the right stuff. Let's think about the supermarket for a sec and think about the different types of strategies people are using. Generally, there are four or five checkouts open. Obviously, this book was written before automated checkouts, but uh, you can use one of three possible techniques. The first one is you pick the shortest line and you stick to it. So you think, okay, this one's closest to the front. I'm going to stick to it. That's option one. Option two is you pick the shortest line, but then if something holds you up, you know, if someone doesn't have money on their card or there's some dodgy item that they want to get returned or something holds up the line, then you can switch at a maximum of once. You pick a line that's moving quicker. Or option three, you pick the shortest line, but you're always on the lookout. You keep looking which one's shorter. Maybe if you're five back and then there's a line that's only got three in it, then you jump across. Then when there's a line that's only got two on it, you jump across again. You're always looking for this shortcut to get out. But the problem here is that every time you switch, you're starting over. You're searching for this quick fix, but you're just wasting time and energy back and forth, and you never actually get to the end of the line and get out of the store. Yeah, moving line to line, you're walking an extra 10 meters horizontally and spending resources really not getting anywhere. So the cues are everywhere. I think everyone knows the entrepreneur wannabe who's on their 12th startup idea, always looking for this new, easier, shiny light opportunity, but they're really never getting anywhere. And because starting something new is always exciting. And if you're always looking for something new, you never really get a good run at any of these new things. And you never actually make it and push through any kind of dip. Let's let's mix in another metaphor, another analogy. Let's talk about woodpeckers. And we think that, you know, when you're faced with a dip, you might think the the right thing to do to give yourself a good choice or give yourself more options is to diversify. So you're working hard at your dip and you're struggling, you bang your head against a brick wall and you think, oh, maybe if I try something else at the same time, if I'm trying two things and I've got two options or two dips that I can make it to the end of. Diversification, it feels like the right thing to do. But success only goes to those that obsess. So if you think about a woodpecker, a woodpecker can tap 20 times on a thousand different trees but still be hungry. But the woodpecker who picks one tree and taps 20,000 times, that's a woodpecker who's about to get dinner. So before you're thinking about entering a new market or as a woodpecker, move to a new tree and a new tree and a new tree, starting a new skill, starting a new business, consider what would happen if you focus your efforts and manage to get through the dip on that one tree that you're already in might take a lot of pecks at this this tree, but eventually that's really the way to get dinner and scarcity. And just to mix a third metaphor in, let's talk about Biryani here for a sec. If you put uh, Men's Health magazine, they put on big muscles and six packs on the front cover, sales go up. And the reason is these things are really hard to obtain. And it's that scarcity that we talked about that makes it desirable. 
and weight training. It's this fascinating science where basically the first minute or two, you work and work and work and nothing's really happening. You're doing your six, seven, eight, nine, ten reps. All it's doing is tiring out your muscle because it's only that last few seconds of work, that last one or two reps, that's where all of the growth happens. The first 10 reps are just there to tire out the muscle and those last two reps is where the growth happens. And that's usually where you feel like quitting, right? Mm. That's the, <laughs> the highest quitting resistance is those last two reps. Like mm. I've probably gotten this bad habit now when I'm doing weights. <laughs> I just go, oh, it feels about right, 10 reps. <laughs> but it's kind of just wasting your time. And Arnie, where we'd stop at 10, Arnie's pushing to 15, 16. <laughs> if you watch him on those videos, he's <laughs> there's a lot of pain in his face when he's grimacing. And that's how he ended up being Arnie and getting onto um, Men's Health magazine. So if you think about it, like the... The dip is like the sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth rep, where it's it's pretty boring. It's a little bit hard, but nothing's really happening. You're still doing that effort of doing the rep, but you're not getting the rewards. So this is like you you're in the middle of your dip, whether that's in career, whether that's in business, whether that's in relationships, whatever the dip that you choose is. Quitting right in the middle of the dip is the bad idea. You got to keep pushing, keep pushing until you get to the other side to get those exponential rewards. So there's really seven different reasons why you're going to fail to become the best in the world, like an Arnie or whatever your best in your world might be. You run out of time and quit. You might run out of money and quit. You get scared and quit. You're not serious about it and you quit. You lose interest or enthusiasm and you just settle for the mediocre life and quit. You focus on the short term instead of the long term and quit (laughs) when the short term gets too hard. Or you pick the wrong thing to be in the best world at and you just never make it. So basically, they're the only things that can stop you from being the best in the world. One, the first six reasons, they're all about quitting for whatever reason that is, or you pick the wrong thing. So it's vitally important that at the very start, you're picking the right dip. You're picking something that you're not going to quit in the middle in. So the resources you've got is the time, money, courage, and enthusiasm. And if you don't realize that you've got the enough resources to push through a dip before you jump into this project, it's better to quit before you even start. Something like podcasting, I think it's a really good example because a lot of people want to get into podcasting. If in their mind that they want to make money from it and make Mm. a living off it, they get to think, all right, are you prepared to go for three to four years perhaps without any money as you build your audience? And I think for a lot of people, they'll quit in the process of year one and year two and really they've just wasted another whole two years on a project they could have spent time on something else. Yeah, or another more extreme one is you might think you might have the goal of you want to get to Mars or something. You want to create a a massive company that's making rockets. Obviously, there's uh, a lot of time and energy and effort and smarts and genius and resources that needs to go into that. If you're just one bloke in your garage, it's probably going to be, that's a pretty tough dip to pick mm. if you're already if you know if you if you're big musk and you've got a few runs on the board you've already got a couple of successful businesses you've got plenty of money you've got some good credibility you've got access to the world's smartest people then that, maybe that's probably a good dip to pick so you got he was kind of he kind of was elon from the garage when he started SpaceX, actually <laughs> but it's sort of like you, you got to work out what dip is realistic for your means mm. and your resources right now what's something you can get to the end and not quit halfway through in So this is the simple solution of philosophy we need to take from this episode. If you can't make it through the dip, don't start. And if you embrace this simple rule, you'll be a lot choosier about which journeys you might start because there's a much greater likelihood of you actually having success in it.
when Jack Welch uh, was was rebuilding General Electric, there's one famous decision he made. It's something that's in all the business books. He says that if we can't be number one or number two in an industry, then we have to get out. So Big Jack, he was pretty happy to sell off a product or a, or a line of their business that was turning over a billion dollars a year if it was stuck at number four in the industry. He said that he didn't want anything where they weren't a chance at being the best at. These were just a distraction for management. It sucked resources. It sucked capital. It sucked focus away from the areas where they could get through the dip to be the top. So Jack made that painful decision. If we can't be number one or number two, we're going to quit everything else. Yeah, that takes loads of courage, right? Like all the investors and everything like that looking at him and he's just cutting off billions (laughs) of dollars of revenue lines, right? Like just a wild, wild rogue person who in the short term, you think is making a very bad decision. But quitting is difficult and it requires you to acknowledge that you're never going to be number one in the world, at least not at this one thing you've chosen. So, it's easier to just put off this hard, harsh decision, just keep the can down the road and mm. don't admit it to yourself and just settle for mediocrity. But it's a real waste of what potential you could have in your life. Yeah, it really is a waste. But quitting at the right time is very difficult. Most of us don't have the guts to quit and and probably even worse is when we are faced with the dip, when we shouldn't be quitting, that's when we do quit. So, it's very tough. Even though we might deep down know what we should be quitting and what we shouldn't be quitting, actually doing it is very tough. So, this dip that you're in, it's going to feel like an enemy. It's like a dragon that you have to battle in order to find that pot of gold, but it's actually your greatest ally. It's actually what makes the project worthwhile. So, it is your best friend and if you're seeing everyone else quit in there because it's too difficult, then you should put a big smile on your face, (laughs) rub your hands together and get excited because people quitting means getting to the other side is scarce and going to be valuable. Yeah, most people when they see the dip, they either quit or they take the foot off the pedal. They do this this boring work but to be a superstar, you need to do something exceptional. You've, got, you've really only got two options and that's quit or be exceptional. So, Seth says that if you're not going to be number one, you might as well quit now. It is okay to quit sometimes. In fact, it's probably good to quit often. If you're on a dead-end path, you should quit. If you're facing a cliff, you should quit. If the project you're working on is a dip but it doesn't lead to the kind of results or rewards at the other end that you want, you should also quit this. Quitting projects that aren't going anywhere is essential so that you've got the time, the energy, the resources to focus on that one thing that does lead to where you want to go. So, before you start a project, you need to write down under what circumstances you're willing to quit and when and then stick with it. So, deciding in advance when to quit is really important. Yeah, there's a story from uh, the ultra marathoner Dick Collins, Big Dick, as his mates know him affectionately. <laughs> he uh, he says that you've got to decide before the race under what conditions are going to cause you to stop and drop out of this ultra marathon because you don't want to get halfway into this ultra marathon and think, oh man, my, my legs hurt, I'm a little dehydrated, I'm pretty sleepy and tired, it's cold and windy, my nipples are getting chafed and you think, oh, I might stop running here. But of course, you've got to realize that if you're going into an ultra marathon, these things are just par for the course. This is just what comes with being the one of those very scarce few that gets to the end of that 100-kilometer race. So if quitting is going to be a strategic decision that enables you to make smart choices, then you should decide before you even start when and if you would possibly quit. And you don't want to be quitting just when it gets uncomfortable. So if you're at this moment and you're asking yourself, oh, should I be quitting this thing? There's two questions you should be asking which will help you make the decision. First, am I panicking? 
So quitting is not the same as panicking. Panicking is something that's never premeditated. It attacks us. It grabs us in the moment. And quitting when you panic is dangerous and expensive. You might just be having a really tough moment in the dip and you have this moment of panic and then you just do a rash decision and just quit what you're doing, which is a really bad thing. Yeah, when the pressure is greatest to compromise, drop out, settle, your desire to quit should actually be at its lowest. Basically, whenever you feel like quitting, you got to realize anybody else going through this feels like quitting as well. And remember that those hurdles and those obstacles, those are exactly the things that you should be embracing because when everybody else is quitting, you're becoming more scarce and more valuable. And the second question you need to ask is, what sort of measurable progress am I making? So if you're trying to succeed in a job or relationship or a task or anything like that, you're either moving forward or you're falling behind or you're standing still. So there are really only three choices there. To succeed, to get to that light at the end of the tunnel, you need to be always making some sort of measurable progress forward, no matter how small. Too often we get stuck in this situation where quitting seems painful, we feel like we're giving up on the progress we've already made and we think we should just stick with it because choosing not to quit is often easier than making that tough choice to quit. But you've got to recognize if you're not moving forward, if you're not making that progress, if you're not taking that extra step towards the light at the end of the tunnel, then you're either standing still or falling behind. So tying this all together, uh, this book in three lines, in life you've got a limited amount of resources where you should be spending it and to help understand where you should put it all and what projects you should stick with. You need to quit the wrong stuff. You need to stick with the right stuff. And the kicker, have the guts to do one or the other. The Dip, what an absolute cracker of a book. We have created a document a couple of years ago called our Top 50 Best Books of All Time. And as a little teaser, the dip features very, very highly on that list. If you haven't grabbed that yet, head to whatyouwillearn.com slash top 50. That's whatyouwillearn.com slash T-O-P-5-0. You can grab our 2019 version. Plus, if you sign up to the list, you will be first in the queue to get the 2021 version when that comes in a couple of months around the corner with probably about half of the books, I reckon, could drop off the 2019 and, and, uh, and 20 to 25 new bad boys jumping on for 2021. So head to whatyouwillearn.com slash top 50.